Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. I'm John Patrick Higgins. And these are my strange stories. Why not relax, kick off your shoes, and enjoy the peculiar worlds inside my head? Inside John Patrick Higgins. Sylvia. I lay still in the darkness. I felt I had been the subject of sophisticated experimentation. My eyes were wide and drank in the gloom as I tried to focus on the fuzzy, busy objects that circled my head like a halo of flies. I breathed in dead leaves and desiccated insects which settled like dust in a crypt. This was not my beautiful mouth. This was not my beautiful tongue. I ran the latter over the former. It was dry and smooth, a snake's belly sliding over ruins. What had happened? I shifted my wooden limbs and something rolled off the bed and fell with a muted clunk onto the carpet. Was it a leg? No, it was a bottle. And then I remembered. It had been Christmas Day and I had been drinking. I got to my feet, padded to the bathroom and ran my mouth under the cold tap. Life sprang up as though on a dusty alien world, my terraplane tongue blooming, becoming flexible and exploratory, the roof of my mouth smooth again. I coughed and my voice returned in yaps. I spat into the sink and tannin sediment coloured the saliva like sick blood. I was alive. I felt I had been beaten about the face and neck with wet rope, but I was alive. I resolved to fry an egg in butter and open a can of fat coke. It was the only way I would live through this. It was Boxing Day. I had survived another Christmas alone, but this was to be a sterner test. Boxing Day 
in company. It was the day of my annual visit to my aunt Sylvia. Sylvia lived in three rooms of a large house on the other side of town. As a young woman she had red hair and studied ballet and I think her sixties had been mildly bohemian. She had been married to an airline pilot and there were rumours she entertained gentlemen callers during his long-haul flights. The family was scandalised. She was a sort of low-rent Princess Margaret in our household mythology. And now I was all that was left of the family. And I wasn't scandalised, I was traumatised. In order to see her, I was going to have to drive across town. I drank coffee, I brushed my teeth, I vomited and I brushed my teeth again. Dressing, I sprayed myself with a lot of deodorant in order to disguise the hand sanitizer whiff emanating from every pore. Pressing my head against the cool glass at the front door, I stared into the grey glow of the day until I pushed outside and made it as far as the car, savouring the chill as I placed hands and cheek against its freezing flanks. The cold was like a slap in the face. Refreshed, I let myself in, dulled the mirror with breath, and started her up. I made it fifty yards down the road before pulling over and heading back on foot to the house to see if I'd close the front door, which I hadn't. I trudged back to the car, which was shivering in clouds of condensation, the driver's door still open. I let my hands and feet do the driving. I did not engage at all. I knew that if my brain blundered into proceedings, there would be a major traffic incident. It would have been like those moments of frozen confusion I encountered typing up my notes, where my brain overtook my hands and I no longer knew where the semicolon key was. Besides, I was already using my brain to sustain a gentle, fizzing panic. I scanned the landscape for signs of the police, squinting at dark shapes in the cold eye of the rearview mirror. I wouldn't ordinarily have driven at all. I had been asleep and drunk an hour ago and would clearly fail a breathalyzer test. But I was late and it was Boxing Day and Sylvia could be very fierce. I hoped the traffic would be quiet and the police, basically human beings, would be at home with their families. Of course, there were probably policemen like me who had no families and were likely to be vindictive because they were working during the holidays and because nobody loved them. So I kept a constant, paranoid surveillance where my hands and feet got on with the job of not actually killing anybody. It worked. I got to Sylvia's house ten minutes after I said I would and I had not been arrested. Christ, you smell like a brewery. I released Sylvia from my embrace. She was brittle and neat, her hair still suspiciously red, her face caked in powder. She wore a baby blue cardigan, pearl earrings, and her eyes were bright in the gypsum mask of her face. She left an imprint in dust on the front of my raincoat, like the Veronica. I can't believe you drove. You stink like a dosser. Thanks very much, I said. I smell death on you. Charming as ever, though you're probably right. I'm properly on my last legs now. 
I draped my coat over the end of the banister and she picked it up with a tut and placed it on a coat stand and, with a tissue retrieved from her sleeve, attempted to scrub her face powder from the lapel with spit. I went straight into the kitchen, slipped on her pinny, and five minutes later I was crushing fennel seeds with a mortar and pestle. She appeared armed with two large tumblers of gin and tonic and two small paper hats. We have been doing this every year for the last decade, after I got back in touch with Sylvia following Mum's funeral. The family had always been small, but by the time I'd reached my forties it had dwindled to nothing. Sylvia had a son in Australia she didn't talk to, and I had a couple of cousins in America I'd never met. Her husband and my parents were long gone, so this was it. Every boxing day I came to her house, cooked a chicken, the only thing I cooked well, and then we got drunk in front of the telly together. After dinner the bickering would start, my character would be swiftly atomised, and I would threaten to leave, but I never did because she kept a good cellar and my house was miles away. So I took the constructive criticism until she fell asleep with her mouth open and fished her false teeth out so she wouldn't choke, placing them on the coffee table in front of her. And then I would drink quietly on my own, watching the TV with the sound down until I also fell asleep. Every year for a decade we did this. I didn't mind. She never remembered the harshness of her words. Or did she? There was always a faint embarrassment in the morning. She could remember something, but perhaps she wasn't sure what it was. I zested a lemon. Are you seeing anyone? said Sylvia. That question comes earlier every year, I said. You usually wait until after we've finished eating. Well, that's a no, then. That's a no, then. She prodded me in the belly. It's because of this. Do you want me to continue cooking you a dinner? I don't actually have to do this, you know. I could be at home right now nursing a bad hangover. I'm not being cruel, Paul. I say it because I love you. I stopped zesting the lemon. You love me. I have to. You're my last relation. You've got a son. He's a little shit. I shook my head. No, Sylvia, I'm not seeing anyone. I expect you've missed the boat now, she said sadly. I chopped the garlic. Dinner was civilised. We drank Pinot Grigio with the bird and listened to a CD of hymns sung by the King singers. The conversation was polite and a bit dull. Neither of us did much and we had few common interests, so there were lengthy gaps, which was fine. We knew each other. The silences were comfortable and the chicken was good, so there was no need for any chat. The paper hats rustled as we chewed, shivering like butterfly wings over our heads. After dinner we watched television. Our television watching was an evolved experience, a well-worn rut. Sylvia was old and thin and felt the cold, so the heating was blasting, and she was slightly deaf, so the TV was blasting, the adverts on commercial channels punishingly so. She narrated each programme, often over expository passages which she found boring, so I was briefed on the action that we had both just seen, but by the middle of the film neither of us had any idea what was going on. 
Sylvia had a memory for faces, but not names. So every time a new person appeared on the screen, I was asked, Who is he? I know him. If I were able to answer the question, she disagreed with me immediately. Oh, don't be stupid. He has a much thinner face. She was bewildered by the end credits when it was revealed that I was correct, wondering how I'd pulled off this feat of Le Jardin. She didn't differentiate between film eras. Every film was happening in one big cinematic now. She was convinced that Joey from Friends was in Arsenic and Old Lace, despite it being made decades before Matt LeBlanc was born. My favourite responses to the evening's viewing were, Who is that actor who always reminds me of Jack Lemmon? And her genuine anger when Juliet Stevenson popped up. I never found out why. She knows why, was all she gave me. Sometimes I was unable to worry out the name of each actor she was thinking of on demand. Even though some of the actors didn't actually appear on the screen, their memory was prompted by the appearance of somebody else. It was like playing a game of Guess Who twice removed. My inability to place the mystery person always disappointed her. You used to be good at this, she'd say, as though there were a point in time when I could gaze into her mind and map out her thought processes from no information. And of course she was right. There was a time I could do exactly that. My parents' death hit me unexpectedly hard, and I became very depressed and briefly moved in with Sylvia, whom I hadn't seen for years. I'm not sure whose idea it was, and I soon moved out again as we both quickly realised it had been a mistake. But after a hot-housed month of intense scrutiny... I could accurately map out whole evenings of Sylvia's idiosyncratic and active television watching. Tonight's assertion was that Americans couldn't do collars. What do you mean Americans can't do collars? Look, she said, as Jimmy Stewart put his foot up in rear window. Look at his collar. Rubbish. He's not meant to look smart. He's a grouchy down at hill photographer with a broken leg. No, they all look bad. All of them. It's the collars. It's just the collars. I knew what this was. These were the symptoms of loneliness. Sylvia was always alone. Watching television was a bonding opportunity for her. The films were not entertainment in and of themselves. They were springboards to a larger narrative. They were a stepping-off point. They included me. My aunt knew something I was good at, perhaps the only thing I was good at, naming obscure actors, and she wanted me to impress her. When she recapped the start of the story over the middle of the story so ultimately she had no idea what was going on at the end of the story, that didn't matter. That was not the point. She knew I would know. She knew I could read a film. She knew it. That night she slept upright on the sofa, head thrown back as though seized with laughter. I removed her glasses. Her teeth had come loose, drawing in and out with each sonorous snore, peeping like a cat's tongue. I removed them and placed them beside her glasses on the coffee table. I fetched a blanket, draped it over her and continued to watch old films on the TV 
drinking her wine in silence, as I had done every boxing day for the past decade. When I finally went to bed, I kissed her on the forehead. In our tiny family, we only ever showed affection when the other person was unconscious. The fight has left her in the last couple of years. She's merely past remarkable now, no longer devastating. There were a few early jabs this afternoon, but for the rest of the day she was almost companionable. It worried me. She wasn't herself. In the morning, as always, she betrayed no hint of the previous night's successes, being bright and neat with just the tiniest edge in her manner, as though she were anticipating bad news. I'm going to go, I said. I expect you're busy, she said. She knew I wasn't busy. Same time next year, I said. If you like, if I am still clinging to life. You're like lichen on a rock, Sylvia. Nothing's going to scrape you off. We hugged, stiffly. I got in and took my jacket off, and there, once again was the powdery outline of her face pressed onto my lapel. There was the ghost of a smile. Inside John Patrick Higgins was brought to you by the colour blue and the letter G. Written and performed by John Patrick Higgins, it was produced and edited by Graham Watson. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.